right, I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9, we're going to be picking up in verse 20. Um, last week we covered Daniel's prayer. And Daniel's prayer was one of, of confession, but also there was a prayer of petition. Um, and, and like I say, Daniel made a simple request. He, Father, forgive us of our sins and restore us to Jerusalem. And so a simple yes might have been what, what Daniel was expecting because God had made that promise. Jeremiah um, had, had the prophecy that after 70 years, then the people uh, would be able to return to Jerusalem according to God's decree. But Daniel received a little bit more. Um, the answer he received was immediate, which is a very good thing. Uh, God answered him right away. But many scholars say that this is the most difficult passage in the Bible to interpret. Um, this is, and, and you've probably heard of it in terms of Daniel's 70 weeks. Um, there have been whole books written on this. In fact, you could probably fill a bookshelf with the books that have been written just on the four verses, essentially from verse 24 through 27. People write a whole bunch about this. And there have been all kinds of choices that people have went through. Um, for example, people have tried to make it extremely literal, and there have been like dates and, and time and timelines and all these kinds of interesting things. There has been very figurative understandings of things that have had Daniel 70 weeks, you know, ending sometime during the Old Testament, sometime in the New Testament, sometime during the church age, all kinds of different ways that people have viewed this. Um, but as we study this passage, we will remember that the main idea um, is hope for Daniel and his people. That's what God is giving to his people ultimately is hope. Just that encouragement that he is in control, that he does have a plan, and that plan does include a full answer to the prayer that Daniel had made. And so... As we get into this, the sermon and the sentence, my goal is to capture the, the big idea and allow us to focus on some of the details without getting so lost that we forget what is actually happening. So Daniel hears, I mean, God hears the prayers of his people and has a plan to put all sin and suffering to a complete end. So that's the whole point of this. Sin suffering, death, all of that will come to an end. That's the point of it. If you want to interpret it just as simply as absolutely possible, God has a plan to end all sin and all suffering. And so that helps us to kind of keep in, in tune with what God was saying. And then as we kind of get into these little details, we'll understand that, that even though these details, some of them may be complex and confusing, we still know what the overall plan is. It's, it's kind of like driving your car. If you had to explain every system and every connection and every part of it, there's not a whole bunch of people that could do that. However, you know if you get in, you put the, the key in, you turn the ignition, so long as there's gas and all the other essential fluids that a vehicle needs, you're going to go somewhere. And so that's what we need to remember is that there are details, and those details are very important, but the overall theme is what we need to remember as we go forward, and that is that God is providing hope for his people that there will one day be no more sin no more suffering that he will rule on this earth okay so i'm going to read you daniel chapter 9 verse 20 through verse 27 it says while i was speaking and praying and this is daniel speaking while i was speaking and praying confessing my sin and the sin of my people israel 
and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man, Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of, every, of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O oh, Daniel, I have now come, uh, come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring an everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after these 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be a war. Um, and, and, and to end there shall be a war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the, decree, the, the, until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Okay, so this is definitely um, detailed. And it is, is definitely interesting. There are parts of it that we can certainly pick up and understand. And there are parts of it that are a little bit more complex. But let's start at the beginning um, with a prayer answered. Um, Daniel was, um, Daniel's prayer was one of both confession and petition. And so if we recall the way that he prayed, he, he had an invocation, he prayed to the Lord, and, and he named him great and awesome. He named the Lord for who he was. Um, and, and so we remember that part about prayer that we are to speak to God as he is, who he is, not about us, but about him. And then when Daniel began to pray, his prayer was one of confession, heavy confession. He was confessing the sins of all the people of Israel, all the way back to where Moses was given the covenant by God and delivered it to the people and, and, and the, the, the weight of the judgment that God placed on those that broke the covenant, Daniel was confessing that sin and confessing the righteousness of God to judge the people because they broke the covenant. He was confessing all of that sin, saying what God would say about it. And then he made his plea because he knew that it was time for the people to go back to Jerusalem. And so he made his plea requesting that the Lord remember his people, restore Israel, specifically restore Jerusalem, that holy hill that he's talking about. Remember, the temple had been destroyed. So that holy hill rebuild the temple. This was the, the, the heartbeat of Daniel's prayer. It was a prayer of hope. It was a prayer of peace. It was a prayer of rebuilding. That's what Daniel was looking for. So Daniel's prayer, he says he was confessing his sins 
and the sins of his people. Now, what we know is that the, the, the sins of Daniel are not listed in Daniel. What he might have done, what he might have said, the, the shortcomings he had, that's not listed. But Daniel was confessing his sins. This does two things. One, it sets a pattern that we confess our sins as we pray. But the other thing, it reminds us that even Daniel, a great saint of the Lord, much loved by God, had sin in his life. And, and he had to deal with that sin and confess it. So, you know, for us, the, the, the job of the Christian is, is not to hide or to cover up their sin, but to confess it and move on from it. You see, Daniel did not make it as if he were perfect. He made it as if God could forgive him. God could remove that sin and restore him to righteousness. And that is the role of, of Christians as well. We we are going to sin. If we lie about that, if we say we have no sin, we are a liar and the truth is not in us, is what John said in his epistle. But what we have to do instead is confess our sin and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ to forgive us. Now, this request, again, was a, a request to restore Jerusalem uh, and specifically the people. Um, we know that Daniel, when he came before God, he was humbled by his own sin, but he was also emboldened by the Word of God. He understood what God's Word said, and so because of that, he could ask a very bold prayer. Now, the way this is told, while Daniel's still praying, if Daniel started in the morning, it says that he was fasting and he was praying, he, he was facing the, uh, the, the, the temple, or where the temple should be, he was praying. Uh, when the time of the evening sacrifice would come, which would be along about 3 or 4 in the afternoon, that was when Gabriel came to Daniel. And, and, and Gabriel, which means mighty one of God, is the same angel, and it says man in this text, but we understand this to be an angel, which is a messenger of God, th that Daniel saw in his other vision in chapter 8. So we understand that this Gabriel is a very important messenger of God. It is Gabriel that visits uh, Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist, um, or, or Zechariah, the, the father of John the Baptist, and Mary, the mother of Jesus. We understand that this Gabriel is the one that God sends to deliver these messages. And so Gabriel is sent to deliver this message, and the language indicates a big rush. God was rushing to let Daniel know that his prayer had been answered. God was sending swiftly. It says uh, there in, um, in verse 21, it says that um, Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He was, he was on his way. He was coming in like a missile almost to tell Daniel that his prayer had been answered, that God had heard him, and that things were about to happen, that things were about to change. Now, the thing that, 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 Dan, that Gabriel tells Daniel is that your prayer, the answer to your prayer was sent when you began to pray. This is a huge encouragement for Daniel. This would be a huge encouragement for any of us to know that the moment we begin to pray, God is listening and he is delivering that answer. And so for Daniel, that is an important thing. Gabriel also tells Daniel that he is greatly loved which might be the most encouraging thing that God could tell a believer at that particular time. And so Daniel, praying, pouring his heart out, confessing his sin, confessing the sin of his people, here is Gabriel saying, I was sent immediately because you are much loved. You are greatly loved. 
That is, that is a very encouraging thing for Daniel to hear as he's getting ready to hear God's actual answer to his prayer. And so there is Daniel, much loved, readily listened to, and we understand that those kinds of things are true for us as well. God shows no partiality. So you are greatly loved. And God listens to your prayers in an instant, delivering answers, sending dispatches, letting you know that He has heard you and that He is responding. So we can rejoice in that same love and that same attentiveness that, that God had for Daniel. He has that for us as well. So for us to know that God greatly loves us and hears our prayers is one of the greatest comforts we can have in troubled times. As you know, one of the most difficult things to do is find someone that will listen to you and listen to you compassionately. But here is Daniel. He knows his Lord listens to him. He knows his Lord loves him. And he knows his Lord is going to do something about his pleas, about his prayer. And so that gets us to the point where we can dig into this 70 weeks. And, and so God is giving Daniel a greater vision, even more than what he has detailed in the past. Because remember, as we looked at what had been detailed in the past. We had saw the Persians and we saw the Greeks. Well, this speaks even further into the future with this, depending on how you look at it. Um, but there have been many interpretations suggested for this passage throughout the years. Um, some people make the mistake of trying to be too specific, while others try to totally dismiss the details of the passage and just get, just, just get an idea, but never deal with the details and what God is actually saying. Both are wrong. We do have to deal with what God has actually said. Um, but at the same time, we know that if we start trying to put numbers, you know, get, getting out our, our piece of paper and our calculator and working these numbers out and, and checking dates and all that stuff, we, we could probably come up with some date in which Jesus must come back. Well, I can tell you that people have tried that and they have been wrong time and time and time again. You're not going to put a date to the return of Jesus Christ. But what we can do is notice what God says. We can understand that in the larger context of history. And we can believe the very core principle that God is in control and he will eventually end all sin, atone for the iniquities of his people, and make a way for an eternal kingdom on this earth. So that is one thing that we can know for sure. So we're going to try to walk that middle road where we notice the details, we pay attention to the details, but we don't try to make some calculated guess as to when these things are supposed to happen. So one thing out of the gate that does seem to be true is that these weeks refer to seven years. So seven days in a week refers to seven years. That is one thing that does seem to be true, and most scholars tend to agree with that. So if you've got 70 weeks, 70 times 7 is 490. Now, one thing that jumps out really fast to us, and so we have to acknowledge the, the possible symbolism. Remember when Peter asked Jesus, how many times should I forgive a person that wrongs me? And Jesus says, 70 times 7. Um, that, that's not a mistake. Jesus didn't just randomly come up with that same grouping of numbers as what Daniel has here. And in that sense, for Jesus to say that to Peter meant, you just forgive. That doesn't mean that if someone offends you 491 times, that last one, that's on them. That, that's not what Jesus meant. That's not even close to what Jesus meant. It meant that you continuously forgive. 
And so when we look at this, we recognize that there probably is some symbolism, but also there are some pretty specific numbers, and God doesn't waste space and waste time giving specific numbers without them having some form of meaning. So the way that the Scripture groups these, these, these weeks is there is a group of seven, and then there is a group of 62, and then there is one final week. Okay, so seven times seven is 49. 62 times 7 is some big number like 434, and then 7 times 1 is 7. I got that one. So what we understand is that we have these three groups, and so if you're looking at them as actually years, then those are the time frames that we have. Um, So when we look at the first group of 7, and it talks about there is this period of time of rebuilding um, until there is an anointed prince, and it's this, this first group, this 7 times 7, 49 years. Now, this probably corresponds to either Ezra or Nehemiah when God gave the decree to those men to rebuild. It has nothing to do with the decree of Cyrus um, because that is, that is a pagan king. But when God gave the decree to either Ezra or Nehemiah, both of those dates actually fit pretty good. And so at the end of that time when there was a high priest again, that anointed prince, that would kind of make sense with those seven weeks, that 49 years. So somewhere around 409 B.C. would be the completion of the temple, completion of the wall, completion of Jerusalem. The way that God said it, they were still rebuilding, but there were parts of it that were built and there was, there was definitely the sacrifices restored, returned again. So somewhere in that ballpark would be that first group of seven weeks. Now, the 62 weeks, if you, if you do the math on that, there's no way to make that fit specifically with the Greeks. Some people want to make that be, well, Antiochus, when he ended sacrifices at the temple, that definitely is that 62 weeks and the end of it and all that. And so then that totally wraps up everything else and we're done eventually. But there's no way to really make that fit with the Greeks. Um, the way that the 62 weeks seem to run is from that point where the, the temple is, is restored, there's a priest again, to the point where Jesus presents himself. It can either be his baptism, where God publicly proclaims, this is my son in whom I am well pleased, or it could also fit the way that you interpret the numbers to when Jesus presented himself to Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, leading up to the Passion Week. Either of those actually fits based on the math and the way that you do it. And so then you have Jesus publicly proclaiming himself as the Messiah. Either of those times, that's the statement. Either of those times, Israel was supposed to believe in him and they didn't. So either of those times actually works. So then what to do with that last week? If, if you believe or agree that maybe this represents the time that Jesus arrives on the earth, what do you do with that last week? What do you do with the week that, that, that there is... A king that is to come, that makes a covenant with many, and for half of that week he ends the sacrifices. What do you do with that? Well, that's where we begin to try to correlate this or harmonize this with other scripture, and we begin to see if there is a seven-year something happening, and it has to do with desolations, if it has to do with wickedness, if it has to do with bad, it makes us want to think about the Great Tribulation, right? But why was there a, why was, why is there a gap? So if at the end of the 69th week we've got Jesus about to be crucified and then the 70th week still hasn't occurred, if you think like that, then, then what, what with the gap? What with this time frame? So 
What I would suggest to you, if that's the way that we understand it, and it is, it's the most literal way, it, 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 it does the most for understanding what the Bible says, the way that we would understand that is looking at the 70 weeks as a specifically Jewish prophecy. It is something that God gave to Daniel, which was to be delivered to the Jews. Okay, so the time that, that God spent with the Jews, or with Israel specifically, was something like 2,000 years. From Abraham to Jesus was something like 2,000 years. It's not exact, it's not, it's not a specific number, but it's something like that. It's, it's more like 2,000 than like 3,000 or 1,000. And so, something like 2,000 years. Well, what we know is that God has been dealing with the Gentiles for something like 2,000 years. And so, if this is a specifically Jewish prophecy, it deals with the, thing, the times that God is dealing with the Jews. If he is not currently dealing with the Jews, then that would explain why there is that gap and why there is a, a stoppage in these weeks in their consecutive rolling out. Now, when God was dealing with the Jews or with Israel, there were Gentiles who were saved. There were those who trusted in God and entered into a relationship with him. Just like now that we're in this Gentile age and God is dealing with us, we are Gentiles, by the way, uh, while God is dealing with us, there are Jews that are being saved. But by and large, the Jews have rejected Jesus as the Messiah. If that's true, if, if, if all of this is given, then in that seventh, 70th week, what we see in Revelation, what we see in other places like Romans, and especially here, in that week, Israel as a nation will recognize Jesus as the Messiah. At some point during that time, Israel will recognize Jesus as the Messiah. They will recognize their salvation. What this might mean is that God did everything to pour out salvation and ultimately what Daniel was asking about. So Daniel was asking um, for the, uh, the, the uh, transgressions, uh, or to, to finish uh, to finish the transgression, to, and this is verse 24, to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. This was kind of the point. This was, this was what was going to be done. At the end of 69 weeks, Jesus is on the earth, and Israel is rejecting him. And so that would create that, that parentheses, that would create that, that stop. And in that time, God outpoured all of those same opportunities to the Gentiles. We see that this is what did happen because of the time of the church, the, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the apostles who, although they were Jewish, their ministry, at least after the first 30 years, was almost exclusively to Gentiles, and it has been since then. That's not to say that the church has always been 100% faithful, but neither was Israel. But God dealt with Israel for a, a, a period of time that was his own determination, and he is now dealing with the Gentiles for a period of time that is his own determination. And then it seems as if he might take back up and, and deal with Israel when they recognize Jesus as Messiah. And so if God had made a promise to them, you will have deliverance. And when he sent deliverance, they didn't recognize it. That might have put a stop to things as God worked with the Gentiles. And then when God begins to work with the Jews again, they will recognize Jesus, and this, this time period will keep going. Now, what does this mean? This means that we don't know exactly when God is going to do anything, which is how it should be. We don't know when 
this next seven years, if it's in the future, when it will happen. There are many very good scholars who believe all of this is done. It's finished. However, when I look at the world, I do not see that transgression is finished. When I look at the world, I do not see that there has been an end to sin. When I look at the world, I do not see that all iniquity has been atoned for, and I certainly don't see a kingdom of everlasting righteousness in front of me. I don't see those things, okay? And so because of that, I believe that God still is going to do something. If we read the New Testament, we, we see that God is still promising to do something in this world. Ultimately, there is the promise for the return of Jesus Christ. And so if, if you believe that Daniel's 70 weeks are connected to God's overall plan that, that we see revealed throughout the New Testament as well, then the end of his 70 weeks will be marked by the return of Jesus to this earth. We know that when Jesus comes back to this earth, he will not come back as the lamb, but he will come back as the lion of the tribe of Judah. He will come back, and the Bible says that the sword that proceeds from his mouth will cast aside all evil, all sin. It will defeat all enemies of God at that time. And so for us, as we look forward, we actually, miraculously, have the very same hope that God was giving to Daniel. Name the problems that you have in this world and then understand how they are related to sin. So for Daniel, he is in exile. He is in Persia. He is awaiting to be able to return to Jerusalem. And all of that is because of sin. It was the sin of the people. It was this, the compounded sin of the people throughout the generations of ignoring the word of God, of, of, of rejecting God's compassion and favor and love, and instead choosing their own way and choosing other gods. And because of that, God poured out his punishment. And then look at us and consider our situation and where we are. When we look at our world now, you might not say, well, it's my sin that has gotten me where I am, but probably we should say that at least to a great extent. But it is also the sins of people around us that cause great suffering and great anguish. And so all the things that are, that are going on in this world, you can point to rebellion against God as the cause for those things. Even if you are not specifically the one rebelling at that moment, we are all, we have all sinned, fall short of the glory of God. That sin has consequence. I believe that sin has both eternal consequence and temporal consequence. In other words, we will pay consequences for sin now, even sins that we don't commit. Because you think about it, when someone speeds and, and they can't control their vehicle and they hit your car, if you were obeying every traffic law known to man, you're still in an accident and you still have to pay or deal with the consequences of that accident. And so we understand that sometimes there are things outside of our control. When we look specifically at the way that man governs this world, and I'm not talking about one government, I'm talking about all governments everywhere. It's petty. It is not for people. It is for agendas. It is for certain objectives or certain goals. We, we look at things now and we don't, we don't see humanitarian governments. We never have. And we never will. And, and it's as simple as this. When mankind gets power, he wants to do something with that power. And, and it's not enough to make other people's lives better. They have to be pushing on towards some objective or some end or some goal. Our problems, a lot of the suffering that we go through is because of sin. 
And there is coming a day when Jesus will return and he will do away with that sin. Now, it, it, it's a lot like anything else. If there is pain, if there is suffering, taking that pain and suffering away sometimes hurts also. Think about the things he's going to cut out of us in order to make sure we don't sin anymore. We will all go through a transition. We will go through a transformation. We will be changed. It says in the twinkling of an eye, we will be made new. But there will be things that are out of your life and gone. And there will be things that have entered your life that weren't there before. All of that is part of that change. We have that hope to look forward to. Now, I would suggest to you that it is unwise to try to explain every detail of this passage. I don't think we can explain every detail. However, it is clear that one day Jesus will put an end to sin and bring everlasting righteousness to this world. That is the very simple statement that is told to us. Jesus will return. He will bring everlasting righteousness to this world. So that's something we can hope in. That's something that we can hang on to. And, and I would say that we are not necessarily languishing under the persecutions of mankind here in America right now, but we are languishing under the consequences of sin. And so that pain and that suffering, and no matter what else is added to it, all of that will be removed when Jesus returns. And I think it's clear that Jesus is coming back. The truth will help us, or that truth will help us endure the evil of man and the suffering that has become part of our lives. If you look and you see something in, in the government or in your job or anywhere else and you say, well, this is just wrong, this should not be this way, take comfort in the fact that God will right that wrong along with all other wrongs at some point when it is His timing. We will not understand all the reasons for our trials, but we will know that in God's timing, they will end. Whatever suffering you're going through, I'm not telling you you're ever going to figure it out while you're alive on this earth. You may not always get that clarity. Why did I have to go through that? Why did that happen? Sometimes you do, sometimes you don't. But what I can tell you is that it will end and that God is in control of your life and the things that you are going through. So how do we wrap this up? How do we say, okay, I understand, I get it, I know what God is doing, or I understand what's in this passage. First and foremost, God knows the pain and sorrow that we are experiencing. Daniel cried out to God. Daniel cried out because he was in exile. Daniel cried out because he was a sinner. Daniel cried out because he wanted his people to be restored to Jerusalem. God knew that pain. He knew that suffering. He knew their sin. And he knew that he was going to bring them back. God cares about us and listens to our prayers. He told Daniel, you are greatly loved. He told Daniel that as soon as you started praying, the answer was sent. These are very encouraging things. Also, Jesus came to give us the ultimate hope for eternity. Whatever Daniel may or may not have understood about this passage, one thing that he definitely got is that God is going to end sin. He is going to end suffering. He is going to establish an everlasting kingdom. Those are things that Daniel would have understood no matter what else might have been gray areas or confusing for him. He would have understood that, and we can understand that just as well. When we trust in the Lord and hope in Christ, we will never be disappointed. Now, you may want more details, more information about these 70 weeks, and I'm telling you people have written a lot of books about it. But what I will say is this. When you get past the details and you look at the picture, what God is saying is trust me and hope in Christ. 
So trust the Lord. Trust that He has a plan, that there is a purpose for what is going on now, and there is an end to the suffering. And then hope in Jesus that that end will be glorious. That end will be redemptive. That end will bring us into a joyful kingdom that will never end. That is the hope that we have in Christ Jesus. And it is because He has made an atonement for our sins. He has fought that fight. And so while it's almost an already, not yet, yes, we do live in that glorious light of His salvation. Yes, we do experience that salvation even now. But there, there is a complete version of it that is coming. There is a complete world-changing event that will happen where Jesus will return. And that's what we need to remember and hang on to. And so that is the hope that this passage provides, is that we trust God, we hope in Jesus, and, and, and the troubles that are in this world become bearable. Not because they go away instantly. Daniel wasn't transported immediately to Jerusalem or to the temple but he knew that help was on the way. He knew that there was an end to suffering, and that was enough, and that's what got him through, and that's what will get us through as well. Let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much just for the time to gather together and look at your word. And we know that many, many people have studied and tried to figure out this passage and each of its details. But what we know is that through the power of the Holy Spirit, you help us to see what you are saying you are saying, trust you. You, you are saying that, that there is hope. You are saying that you are in control. And Father, for that, we say amen and thank you. We say praise you. We glorify your name because we know that you are in control. We know that without a doubt, without fail, you will always be there for us. And that there is coming a day when you will bring your kingdom to earth and we will never depart from you. And so, Father, we look forward to that day with hope, with rejoicing, with joy. And I pray that as we have gathered here this morning, no matter what burdens we carried here, no matter what trouble we might have had to walk through just to get here this morning, I pray that we can continue to rejoice in you because you are still king. You are God that is not going to change. You rule. And even though we might not understand what's going on, we understand that you one day will put an end to all suffering. Let us hang on to that hope. Let us celebrate that hope. And when we look in this world and we see the evil of mankind, let us know that mankind can rage, mankind can sin, but they are under your dominion and you will end sin one of these days. And so let us hope for that day. Let us live as righteously and peacefully as possible. And Lord, also let us declare your glory to everyone who will listen. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.